At Seek Safely, it's our mission to empower seekers to have a safe and meaningful self-improvement journey. Why do we care? Seeking to be your best self is an amazing, beautiful human impulse that has led us to create art, invent technology, tell amazing stories, and reach the moon. But we saw the dark side of self-help in 2009 when a recklessly run self-improvement retreat led to the death of three people, including my sister, Kirby Brown. We want people to seek, to dream their big dreams and chase their beautiful goals. But we want to make sure they're safe along the way. This podcast is about education and empowerment and getting real about the promises and problems of self-help. We talk with people who understand and care about the self-help industry and everyone it touches. I'm Jean Brown. I'm Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle. And And this this is is the the Seek Seek Safety Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Seek Safely Podcast. I'm Jean Brown. My co-host, Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle, is here as well. That's me. That's you. Hello, Jean. Hi, how are you? I'm great. I'm, it's great to be speaking to you. The only thing that would make it better is if we had a special guest. We do have a special guest. <gasps> we do. <laughs> Who is it? <laughs> we have our favorite guest, Dr. Christine Whelan, with us today. Hi, Dr. Christine. <laughs> well, hello there, guys. It's good to be here. <laughs> Dr. Whelan, the happiness professor? That would that Dr. Whelan? Professor. The one and the same, the happiness professor, the purpose professor, you name it. I'll profess. <laughs> wow. Do, 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 does, do those Venn diagrams intersect? Like the happiness professor and the purpose professor? Is, is, are those related? Because knowing the why it matters is really important before the how of how to make it happen. So knowing your purpose is very important on your path to happiness and a life of thriving. Oh, man. We could probably have an entire episode about the connection between happiness and purpose. And, and we, I didn't know that you were both, that you were both the happiness professor and the purpose professor. I am. I'm the happiness professor at UW-Madison and the purpose professor at Emory University in Atlanta. Oh, wow. So, so they're so different institutions. So when, you're down in Ad- so when you're down in Atlanta, it's not about the happiness. It's all about the purpose. Indeed. I'm, I'm all business. I'm all about values and, and, and purpose and meaning formation down south in Atlanta. And then when I come up to the Midwest, then we talk about happiness and, and well-being in the wellness industry. It, it's kind of like the mullet of personal development. It's happiness in the front, purpose in the back. We love to see it. We love to see it. Oh, I've always wanted to rock a mullet. I love it. You can always get me with a mullet joke. I love mullets. Gene Brown, what, what are Amazing. we talking about on this episode of the Seek Safely podcast? I mean, I think there's a lot we could talk about with Dr. Christine, to be honest. But tonight, tonight, we are going to be talking about self-help books that aren't actually self-help books. So this is something you guys have kind of mm, alluded to this a few times in other discussions we've had. But we know, many of our listeners will know, if you've heard Dr. Christine on the podcast before, or if you heard... Dr. Glenn and Dr. Christine during our Seek Week Kirby Jam, some of our our evenings then, yeah, they can geek out about self-help books for hours and hours. And uh, and hours and hours. But yeah, we're interested in this sort of interesting subset of self-help books that were never really intended to be self-help books and then just kind of were adopted by the culture as self-help books. So yeah, that's that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to talk about some of these different books and then sort of get into the idea of what is actually a self-help book and what does this crossover situation that seems to happen frequently, what does that say about the self-help industry? So so, yeah. so this was an idea really that that came out of our self-help geek off that we did during our our seek week kirby jam fundraiser so y'all know that that dr whelan and and me yeah we can talk about this stuff for hours and we got to talking that night we got to talking about self-help books and it struck me 
that a lot of the titles that were coming up, you actually wouldn't find in the self-help section of the bookstore. If you're familiar with a very famous self-help book, um, the, high, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, in the introduction to that, he actually talks about this. He actually talks about how in the history of, of like he's talking about American culture, but kind of in the history of the country, there is this tradition of what he calls the character ethic collection of, of personal growth material. And it was, they tended to be things like autobiographies, you know, like the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, I think is, is what he cites as an example of this. And then Covey says, you know, there, there was a, a certain point at which the character ethic was kind of left behind. And there was kind of a switchover in American culture to focus on what he called the personality ethic. And these were books that tended to be explicitly self-help books. So these would be books like How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, right? Like that's a, it's, it's essentially a book about how to have a persuasive, likable personality, right? It's like the ultimate personality ethic book. But that's the thing. If you ask a subset of, of people, a large subset of people in America today, what is your favorite self-help book? Some Very often they won't cite a book that can be found in the, the self-help section. A lot of people identify, I mean, I guess I can start off our conversation here. A lot of people will identify the, the Bible, the Holy Bible, as their favorite self-help book. What, so, so, Dr. Whelan, Christine, we, we know each other. We, can, we, can, we're, we're we, we do. We can, we can be on a first-name basis, I think. If I, if I can be on a first-name basis with, with chatbot AI Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle, I could call him Glenn. I can call you Christine. We're actually Yeah, friends. you can call me Christine. Absolutely. So what do you think? Bible may be um, one, of the, one of the oldest, most pervasive, quote-unquote, self-help books out there? Absolutely. I argue that, that the Bible is one of the best-selling self-help books of all time, right? Because if you think about what the Bible is— it is about moral and ethical guidance, right? It's about stories and parables trying to teach you advice on how to have a good life, how to get to heaven, how to have a good afterlife, how to make moral decisions. It's about hope. It's about comfort. It's about spiritual growth and reflection. There's wisdom, there's life lessons, it's about community and belonging. I mean, you know, it, it really it like is, is hitting all of the, um, all the elements. And then if you think about in the Judeo-Christian tradition, how the Bible is used as the basis for sermons or homilies or ways that the advice that was written a long time ago can be updated and personalized for your daily life in modern ways. Well, Norman Vincent Peale, who wrote The Power of Positive Thinking, was one of those pastors that really used the Bible as a jumping-off point to himself write a best-selling self-help book. But the Bible's got a lot of that uh, kind of stuff going on itself. 100%. So that's, it's, it's interesting that you bring up Norman Vincent Peale, because I talk about one of the bedrocks of American self-help culture, you know, that book specifically, The Power of Positive Thinking. So I, so my experience with the power of positive thinking, I first found that book. Let's see, it was in 1995. I had just moved to Lawrence, Kansas to, to work on my music degree, which would be a short-lived but glorious project. And I was depressed out of my skull, and, and, and I was, as usual, prowling the self-help aisle. And I found the power of positive thinking by Norman Vincent Peale. And I was surprised because I didn't know much about him, but I was surprised as I, as I got into it. No, it is um, essentially cliff notes of the Bible. It is. And, you know, he actually got a lot of flack from the uh, from more fundamentalist Christians at the time that said that his book and his approach to the Bible was from such a self-help lens that it was about what God could do for you as a human, not about how you as, uh, as, as a human could be serving in the glory of God's image. And 
it's very interesting to sort of see that tension. So when you talk about the Bible as uh, the ultimate self-help book, and again, it's not just Norman Vincent Peale who's done that. I mean, if we now think about the power of purpose and some of those, um, the Rick Warren book, Rick Warren, for example, took the Bible and used a cliff notes or a sort of trans, a modern translation of the Bible that actually turned parables into real sort of self-help phrases. And I can look up some of them there and, and pull some of them if you're interested, but they are really wild translations that very much underscore this idea of the Bible as self-help. You bet. Mm-hmm. You bet. Yeah. And there are tons of other books that probably would really more clearly fall into the self-help category, but that are Christian and Bible-based, like, you know, prayer and meditation type books, right? It's it's like the Bible franchise of self-help books. Absolutely. So do you know that the single largest category in the entire self-help book universe, the single largest category of self-help books in print is religious self-help books? And nobody knows this in part because religious self-help books had to be taken off the New York Times bestseller list about 40 years ago because there were so many of them that they were entirely taking over the nonfiction. You just dominate uh, the list. Exactly. It dominated yeah. the list. So they were moved to their own list and then they were dominating the self-help list. And so then they were taken off the self-help list. Mm-hmm. This, this checks yeah, out. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there, there you go. That's our, our first ultimate self-help book that's not a self-help book. Well, what, what occurs to me too about the Bible is, is that, I mean, talk about a source of narrative and metaphor that is so universally recognized that even in, in personal growth material that isn't explicitly Christian or religious or spiritual, that, that these metaphors and references pop up like so in my favorite self-help book of all time Awaken the Giant Within by by Anthony Robbins he leads off every chapter well, and he doesn't just lead off the chapters he intersperses the chapters with these little quotes of pithy wisdom and i would say a good 30% of the time they're bible verses and there's not a self-help teacher more secular than my boy tony so it's just extraordinary to think of like i I don't know if we can think of a singular self-help book, quote-unquote self-help book, that has the reach that uh, the Bible does. So, still the most popular self-help book. I, I, I I think it really is. And the other thing that's kind of interesting about it is that it is unique. The Bible and that sort of American idea of self-help very much goes uh, hand in hand because it is about sort of a, a lot of individual action towards salvation. And most of the American self-help books focus on what you can do to help yourself rather than necessarily about a sort of a more community approach to things or a more sort of group dynamics. Not to say that the Bible isn't encouraging helping others, but more thinking of like individual versus communal. Whereas you look in Eastern traditions and then and uh, you see a concepts of Zen and concepts of non-grasping and meditation now beginning to come into self-help literature as well. So now we have other religious traditions coming in with a very different tone. But for the first sort of couple hundred years of American self-help, it was all that sort of Judeo-Christian mindset. And then and now we have the Dalai Lama coming in. We have other kinds of, of Eastern traditions coming in that add a very different tone to self-help. Do, do you think that maybe part of the Bible's success as, as a self-help book has to do with the fact that it is such a, an eclectic array of, I mean, within the Bible, um, you could probably say like that there are probably 20 different self-help books within the Bible oh, that, yeah. that take different perspectives and emphasize different stuff right so it's it's almost yep. like i mean the bible itself is really not one book like i mean it's almost like if you took wayne dyer and tony robbins and deepak and put them all together in one book mm-hmm. so, so pretty much anybody can find something that that they groove with yeah there's something for everyone 
<laughs> yeah, it, it can be a choose your own adventure um, for better or for worse in, in these kinds mm-hmm. of um, approaches. Yeah. yeah, but you know, but th- but there are so that's this, this is one of the reasons, for example, why my class at UW Madison called Consuming Happiness is cross listed with religious studies because the intertwining of the Bible and other Judeo Christian traditions with American self help is just so deep, so intertwined, and yet there there are lots of other ideas and other self help books that are not really self help books that have also woven their way in. And one of them is one, Gwen, that you and I have talked about, which is either Atlas Shrugged or The Fountainhead or any of Ayn Rand's books, because they themselves also are about a particular do-it-yourself, individualistic worldview that you can conquer it all uh, and that you have the freedom to choose your own destiny. Not only, not, I think what Ayn Rand would, would say is not only do you have the freedom to choose your own destiny, you have the moral responsibility to choose mm-hmm. your own destiny. Indeed. Like her, book, her books are, are so interesting from, a, you know, like whatever you think of them philosophically, like they're, they're so interesting just from a literary perspective. Because they are shot through with, um, I mean, it's kind of interesting. She she has this reputation as kind of this amoral capitalist, but Atlas Shrugged is shot through with mor- moral themes, and the relationship between Atlas Shrugged and 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 the self help personal growth culture is is really kind of interesting. If for no other reason than Ayn Rand's involvement with Nathaniel Brandon who went on to become a huge self-help author, probably the most successful self-help author to write about self-esteem ever. Like he's certainly the author that we think about when we think of self-esteem, but he was a, I mean, at, at first a disciple of Ayn Rand's. They, they went on to have this romantic relationship. That's, that's very well documented. It's this kind of torrid affair that they had and, and his philosophy, Nathaniel Brandon's philosophy of self-esteem which is huge in self-help culture, like has its roots in Ayn Rand's objectivism. I mean, rumor has it that the character of John Galt, kind of the hero of Atlas Shrugged, was modeled on Nathaniel Brandon. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. Oh, we'll we'll have a long conversation about Nathaniel Brandon and Ayn Rand because it's 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 great. I can highly recommend Nathaniel Brandon's book Judgment Day. It's 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 his it's his memoir of his years with Ayn Rand. I think they issued a, a, a second edition that was just titled My Years with Ayn Rand. But the point is, no, it, it, for as pervasive as the Bible is for a certain segment of of uh, folks, um, Atlas Shrug, I would say, is as pervasive in a secular way because you know folks who who adhere to objectivism, which is the philosophy of Ayn Rand tend to be either agnostics or atheists or, or you know, kind of anti-religion, anti-God. It's, it's interesting. I'm, or Atlas Shrugged is interesting as well because it's an example of a self-help book that communicates its precepts, but not through, not in the format of like, here's what you should do. Like it's, it's a novel. It's, it's a drama. Yeah, it's fiction. Yeah. Which I yeah. find super interesting. Um, there, there's there's a subset of these books that are that way. Like the greatest salesman in the world is another example of this, mm-hmm. which is where again it's 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 a hugely popular self help book, but it's not really you know here's what you should do. It's it's it tells us the story of these characters and what they did, right? Or the alchemist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So God, yes. Yeah. Right. You know, there's inspiration and in following your dream. I mean, or moral lessons, like from uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, yes. right? I mean, mm-hmm. Harper Lee is offering moral lessons there. Again, these are all through the lens of fiction, but as a way to guide you. And in fact, I think many fiction writers would say that they hope that their art is also guiding people to think about things more deeply. Yeah. And I mean, I think the thing that's interesting is like, yeah, yeah, so many fiction books have a a message or a moral, you know, like a, a moral thread to them. But the author didn't set out to write something that would eventually be considered self-help, right? But right. there's something about certain books that even though they were written as fiction books, like Ayn Rand had, I think, a very clear agenda. Yes. 
but it still wasn't like, I don't think she was trying to write a self-help book per se. I think it was more of like a theory of everything kind of book or almost like a political, you know, it um, definitely has like a, a political aspect to it in terms of, you know, political theory, well, that's Social really interesting. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You you mentioned this idea of a theory of everything because it makes me think of some other theory of everything books, like *Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind*, the Harari book, because that kind of talks about history and human evolution and a way to understand and make choices about today's world in a more sophisticated way by knowing the past, or even like *Guns, Germs, and Steel* about how about societies and development. And so that's sort of this idea of the broad swath of history and then how can you make more informed choices today? Now, the challenge with all of this, and by the way, this is a challenge that I had while doing my doctoral dissertation on self-help books, is that you can kind of argue that almost everything is self-help once you get going on it. Um, and this is absolutely a rabbit hole that I, that I, that I fell down. <laughs> and so I had to figure out like a real sort of working definition of what a self-help book is. And I'll tell you uh, uh, the brief version. I had a very, very wordy academic definition in my <laughs> dissertation, but, but in brief, I basically said that they had to be nonfiction books. So I kicked out all of these fiction books in in my categories. So they had to be nonfiction books that promised a clear positive result from doing what they said that they were going to do, and that they had a psychological component rather than just a how-to component. Because the, there are a whole other subset of books that really kind of fascinate me, and those are books like cookbooks, for example. Technically, they're just teaching you how to make a recipe, but not really. They're really about like, you know, either looking and feeling your best about um, an aspiration to hold a particular lifestyle or type of party or something like that. And so, you know, our cookbooks, self-help books, I categorize them at the end of the day as how-to books. What about financial books? Well, financial advice is all about thriving and the good life. And, but if it's much more about stock tips than it is about making moral choices about your money, I then had to split those kinds of books into two categories, right? So I put stock tips to one side as how to, and then the books on sort of better ways to spend in keeping with your values. I put those in the self help section. So it's really, I think, kind of an interesting thing to wrestle with about how we want to define self-help books. Right. And then to complicate it further, I think one of the things that happens, like, you know, I think what I'm getting at with some of these fiction books is there's on the one hand, you have the intention of the author and even the publisher where, okay, clearly we're just writing a cookbook or clearly we're just putting out a work of fiction. But then the other side of it is how it gets taken up by the readership. And I think sometimes these books are written as one thing and then they're adopted in the culture as something else, which I think is the case with something like, you know, Ayn Rand, or I would say like a more contemporary example, Eat, Pray, Love. That is a memoir. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And yet people have taken it up as this sort of way to live, you know, this kind of like treatise on how how to live your life. And then the author, I don't know what her intention was necessarily from the start, Elizabeth Gilbert, but she leaned into that side Mm -hmm. of things where then she was seen as this kind of guru of living the the good magical life and whatnot. And her subsequent books, I think, got more self-helpy as a result of that. And speaking of lean in, of course there is lean mm-hmm. in, right? Yes. And, and then there is all of the sort of the empowerment books in the business sector uh, about leadership, about gender, about overcoming obstacles. And those I would definitely consider self-help books. But it's really interesting because when we think about sort of uh, the gendered nature of self-help, it turns out that men are significantly more likely to buy their self-help under the guise of business and leadership self-help books uh, and women are much more comfortable buying their self-help uh, around, you know, around relationships and uh, and also personal exploration. This is one of the reasons why 
our old friend James Arthur Ray, who we cannot have a podcast without mentioning. You're welcome, Gene. Got to check that box every time. Now, it's, it's, it's one of the reasons why he keeps trying to cram the word business into all of his stuff. So, so originally when he was, you know, after his prison term, he had this book that he was working on. I think it was just called Redemption or something like that. And he, when it finally came out, it was the business of redemption because he really wants to be known as a business guy for that exact reason. And the truth is like he is the, the most plain Jane mishmash of self-help stuff in the history of self-help. But the business thing, I mean, the, the fact that there's so much self-help that is published under business brings us to maybe one of the most well-known self-help books that's not technically a self-help book, good old uh, Trumper and The Art of the Deal, mm-hmm. which, which was huge. Like, it was this runaway bestseller, and, and he's still really known for it. I mean, he's known mm-hmm. for it. It was, it was ghostwritten. But, and, it, and it kind of falls into the category of what you guys were talking about a second ago of like a lot of books are like this, where they kind of entwine memoir with advice giving. Like we you actually see this format a lot, where the, the where the author kind of shifts between describing their career or their life and like life lessons they learned. And I'm going to pass this on to you. But Art of the Deal is kind of like that because he talks about his business, his 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 come. Um, I was about to say his comeuppance. That hasn't come yet. Or maybe it has. Um, his his coming up in the business world, um, entwined with lessons that are not. I don't know. I I didn't find them terribly profound. Like never give up. Like like always keep an eye. Like that kind of you know that kind of plain Jane uh, business advice. But um, no, the art of the deal was huge, huge, huge back in the day. It's it's interesting to think about Trump. As a uh, wow, I'll start talking about Trump on this podcast. That'll bring in listeners. Gene, we cool with this? <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting to think. Like he was like a huge thing in the culture for a long time before his current iteration, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, he was kind of a, he was on Pizza Hut commercials for crying out loud. He was he was in Home Alone too, right? Well, tr- you know, Trump University, yeah. What was that going to be, right? I think that that was going to be offering things that courses and the types of things that we see in the self-help industry all the time. And, you know, what's interesting is that this is not a new thing for leaders to be then offering advice to the plebeians of the world uh, goes back millennia, right? And so this, um, this idea of great men writing self-help books to teach the lessons of their success in a just-so story of, you know, a, a linear success, usually. That, um, you know, that that's a very, very common thing. And in fact, if you sort of read, like, like even go back into sort of philosophical works, I mean, if you read uh, Marcus Aurelius and Meditations, right? I mean, that's Stoic philosophy, but that's about how to live virtuously. And of course, the very famous war, one, the reason why Trump called it the art of the deal was because of the art of war, right? And that, that, and, and this idea of ancient Chinese military techniques as a way to hack before the idea of being a hacker was cool, um, hack your life and, uh, and, and win the war. So this goes way, way back. Mm-hmm. It does. It so two things occur to me about that. One, it, it reminds me that there's a subset of people who think of the Prince by Machiavelli. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, as, that's as, a great as, one. As a self help book of, I mean, a, a manual for successful living. Anyway, it's interesting. I was just in a conversation with with one of my friends, and I was. <laughs> I have a friend, a social worker named Brit. She's one of my best friends in the history of the of the universe, and she loves The Little Prince. You know the book about the little mm-hmm. you know, the I prince do, yeah. The, yeah, the rose and the fox, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I got her a, a, a Christmas present, Little Prince themed. And I told my other friend, "Yeah, I got I got Brit this Little Prince thing." Oh, why would you do that? That's terrible. She thought I meant The Prince by Machiavelli. Like, why would you get your friend? <laughs> Just think about how to be a murderer and tyrant. And anyway, (laughs) 
No, so so there's that. There's 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 Machiavelli. The other thing that occurs to me, you mentioned the meditations by by Marcus Aurelius. I mean, that kind of builds on an ancient Roman, ancient Greece. You could make the argument that maybe the first self-help stories, they didn't have books back then, but maybe the first self-help stories were uh were the were the myths, right? Like the Greek mm-hmm. myths. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and and that's really what storytelling, how storytelling evolved, right? It was about passing down lessons. And one of the things that really struck me as you were telling the story about the little prince and the prince is that the three of us have been able to have this conversation and rattled off a couple dozen books and concepts that we have this idea um, uh, that these books are shared knowledge in um, in the lexicon, and I think that may be true for people in their forties and older. But what I'm seeing with my college students is that people are reading these books less and less frequently, and that instead the shared language is coming not from books, but from content creators, and internet influencers. And so that is notable because then it will be the memes that offer advice and the YouTube shorts that are offering advice. I've been particularly interested in this because this discussion of self-help books that, you know, are influential but that aren't necessarily self-help just also makes the assumption that we're, that we're reading and exposed to these, these books and these concepts. I'm not sure that my students who are in their, you know, early twenties are on the track to be exposed to these same kinds of ideas. And that just means that they're getting their advice and their quote unquote classics are going to come from a very different place. Mm hmm. Yeah, it is interesting. And I, you know, in a way, I think also like we started with the Bible, which kind of makes sense that we're, we see this evolution, right? Where I think in many ways, the modern self-help industry is replacing organized religion where people have moved away from organized religion, but are still looking for that kind of spiritual fulfillment. And yet, the self-help books and things that, you know, the kind of we grew up with still referenced those, you know, that the original source, like something, you know, Christian text and that kind of thing, because that was still familiar for us. Whereas like you're saying, I think much of society has gone even more secular, perhaps until now, I think things are shifting again a little bit, but yeah, so our our sort of touch points are very different. I'm I'm thinking what you're talking about, Christine, it's going to be more like concepts and ideas that sort of become popular and memeable for a while. Like the other kind of self-help concept that I can think of in recent years is the whole like huga thing, h y g g e huga. Right? People adopting this like Scandinavian sensibility of how to live a cozy and simple sort of life and and making a bigger life philosophy out of it, right? But mm-hmm. there's not really like a book to go to for that, but you'll have tons of influencers or memes or small things like that on the internet that kind of coalesce into this like concept, right? Right. Or the, you know, Marie Kondo, the um, mm-hmm. life-changing magic of tidying up. But that actually, so that was a book, but the reason why she really took off was when she had a show, when it became something that people watched, not something that people read. And I mean, I could go off on a whole sort of lament about that, but but at this point, I'm I'm kind of now more interested in it as a um, an evolution of an industry, and how does an industry evolve for two in, in two ways? First of all, it's it's increasingly hard to make money um, when everything has to be given out for free on social media, unless you're getting, uh, you know, trying to get the ad sponsors. And, and then the, the other angle of it is there are no citations. There's no sort of fact checking associated with it. The industry was never very good at citations and truth to begin with. But now when it's not uh, people purchasing it, but rather the number of clicks you get, 
then you get into the sort of the, the spin and the cycle of more and more crazy stuff out there, which I fear is what we're seeing a fair amount of. Mm-hmm. Those those internet influencers. Thank goodness, I'm not. Thank one goodness, of those. Not, yes. Thanks goodness, you're not one of them, Glenn. And thank goodness, I'm not trying to be like you. And try well, to become and you one can, of them. You can attest to the fact that even being a successful influencer isn't necessarily a path to fortune. <laughs> How dare you? I'm just saying he's not getting rich off of his tweets, guys. True, he's true just story. Putting it out there to be nice. <laughs> not yet. E- Elon told me I was going to get rich off my tweets, but so far the biggest check I've gotten has been like sixteen bucks. It, thing about that is too, like, so yeah, so I, I'm, I'm blue check on on Twitter, and so you get like a portion of the ad revenue. And he like, yeah, like every three weeks or so, Elon sends you a check for like. 15 bucks he doesn't say why like there's no transparency into how this money is being made i don't know why what i find interesting is like so there there have been conversations in the culture lately about plagiarism it's ruined careers and and whether you think it should ruin careers or not is is and and what kind of plagiarism counts as plagiarism and and what are the huge discussions however the culture of self-help books has changed such that like, you know, look, if we had the internet in the early eighties, let alone the plagiarism checking software that we have, like, like unlimited power by Tony Robbins doesn't get written. Right. And that career doesn't get launched. And I'm going to imagine that Tony's probably not the first one to do it. Right. So, I mean, it would be such this self-help landscape has changed, you know, such with the, I mean, and we were joking about AI before we came on guys, go check out the AI, Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle, but don't believe everything he says. It's not real. It's, it's changed the, the, the landscape so much. So what I kind of wonder is making the transition to, um, by the way, there's a great book um, that was published in the nineties called amusing ourselves to death. This, this ring mm. about, Mm-hmm. By a guy named Neil Postman, I think his name was. But he actually he actually made the argument at the time. He says, Belly, once upon a time, um, the epistemology of our culture, how we knew things were true, is like we saw it printed. We saw it printed in a newspaper or something or in a book. That's how we knew things were, were true. Um, then TV hit in the 50s, and we made the transition to, well, how did we know it was true? Well, we saw it with our own eyes. It was one of the reasons why it was important that the moon landing be on TV because we had so thoroughly, like even within a few years made that transition to like, well, I need to see it if it's real. Nowadays we're kind of at this point where it's like, how do I know something is real? Well, it came from a source I trust, whether that's Fox news or MSNBC, like whatever it is. So I'm so curious as to where, you know, where we go next, you know, like, how do I know something is true? Well, Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle said it, you know, Dr. Christine Whelan said it. That's my. Right. And, and the challenge of course, for, for self-help is that if you get a following, people continue to want things from you. And I'm sure Dr. Glenn, you are an expert on everything, but I can assure you I am not. And like, I can only write and talk about so many things before I would have to like be silent for a while to learn more things to write and talk about. Um, and I think that, and I think that's really a challenge for a lot of people who are expected to produce endless amounts of content Mm -hmm. constantly. Some like maybe even Gene Brown might say that Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle has reached the point where he should be silent and, 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 and learn some things. Some might say, some might say. Coming back to um, self-help books that are not, strictly speaking, self-help books. Uh, so we mentioned a, a few biographies or, or a few like memoirs. One of my favorite, I know I've mentioned this before, but one of my favorite comes from, from such an unexpected source. There is a book written by ex-president Richard Nixon, and it's titled In the Arena. So Nixon, after he resigned in disgrace, spent the next several decades kind of rebuilding his reputation as, as a statesman and, and, and as a writer. He was an incredibly prolific author. And one of these books, so when I was a kid, I was very into presidential history and presidential trivia and stuff. And so I was 
And I have a fascination with Nixon just as a guy. Like psychologically, I think he's fascinating. So I've read every Nixon book you can find. In the Arena is is this book written by Nixon where each chapter is a different subject matter with a, like a one word title. So um, and, and they're about various domains of life or various things in life. So for example, there's a there's a chapter titled Reading. And there's a chapter titled Temperance, and there's a chapter titled uh, like War, and he just kind of uses each chapter as an opportunity to reflect upon that theme, and and he kind of weaves in anecdotes from like world leaders he met and things that he went through, etc. But the effect of the book is like here are some useful lessons for the journey from Richard Nixon, who was a really whatever else you think of him, he was a really smart guy who had a lot of really interesting experiences. Um, and I remember re- as I was reading it, and I was reading it as I was a teenager, and I was way into self-help anyway. And so I'm reading this book going, wow, this actually turns into a self-help book. This is if Dick Nixon wrote a self-help book. Do we have other examples of like politicians or public figures who, who wrote books that have kind of become manuals for living? I, I mean, I'm thinking of like business leaders Right, like there's good to great. What about Nelson Mandela Ooh, um, and his "Long Walk to Freedom" book? There you go. Right, sure. That was there. There were lessons on perseverance and the struggle for freedom and leadership and all of that. That's sort of in the in in that same you bet. vein of. I, I feel like there's a so if you're gonna be a politician these days. And maybe this moment, maybe this moment has passed, but it felt like for for a while, like one of the rites of passage. For example, if you're going to run for president, you had to write a book at some point. Mm-hmm. Like you had to have your book, and then you would then you would use the book tour as kind of an opportunity for like a dry run for a campaign. So I feel like for a few years we had like this spate of of politicians hopefuls that would that would write a book. That wasn't exactly a self-help book. It was usually like political themed, but invariably, like the themes would cross over into like, well, like you know, so like this is my worldview. It would invariably lend itself to, well, this is how you should be living. This is what's right. This is what's American. This is what's whatever. One of the most inter- one of the best self-help books. This is going to sound weird, uh, but one of the best uh, so so weight management books. Like there's so many books about how to lose weight. I think one of my favorites for ironic reasons is the ultimate weight solution by Phil McGraw. <laughs> I just, oh. <laughs> it's oh, great. Don't start me. It's great. You see, Dr. Phil, it's such a, it's such a jarring contrast. Like Dr. Phil, who's not really known as an athlete. I don't know. He might be like, you know, he might be a, a, a health enthusiast, but he's on, he's kind of doing a, a fist pump on the cover of this book. Like the ultimate weight solution, Dr. Phil. Anyway, so Mike Huckabee, who was a, a Republican guy for a long time, he was uh, governor of Arkansas, I think, and he ran for president, was at one point extremely overweight and lost a ton of weight and then wrote a book, essentially a self-help book, titled Quit Digging Your Grave with a Knife and Fork by Mike Huckabee. It's not the longest self-help book in the world, but I read it. It's a really good little weight loss self-help book. Like it's, it doesn't have like crazy diets or anything. It has like a lot of good actionable advice. And I often think, you know, man, from the most interesting sources, you come these like yeah, actual quality self-help books. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, my challenge with memoirs as self-help books, though, is that, is, is that I, I just feel like they've got to be a just-so story. Of course. Right. I mean, yeah. the, and and uh, and one of the things that always bugged me in self help books in general are those vignettes. Yeah, oh, I hate them. I hate to- them. They are totally <laughs> fabricated, and and those people don't exist, and yet they are made to hold. I had a them. conversation with this person at a bus stop. No, right? You no, you didn't. No, you didn't. You made. You had a conversation with yourself at a bus stop, and you know, <laughs> and. Uh, and so the, the the memoirs and the just so stories. When I when I work with students and students say, you know, tell me um, tell me your career path, 
I sort of laugh and I'm like, well, um, I mean, I'll give you brief versions of four choices and then you can pick which one you would like me to be my career path. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's so many versions you can tell of the story of your life. Uh, there's this, this TED talk that I've always wanted to give is about the two stories of your life and the, you know, the, the, the story of success and then the story of failure and how both are actually true. But with these memoirs, because they have to be these inspirational memoirs that'll get you like, you know, uh, testing the waters for a presidential run or something, you're only getting half the story. Of course. Of course. If that. And then that makes people feel bad. And this is where I, this is like my high horse that I'm getting up on these days around self-care and wellness is that it's a blame the victim mentality. So I worry often that some of these self-help books that are written more in the I did it and so can you vein may in fact be all the more damaging because you then read it and say, well, why am I the failure? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is like we could call these sneaky self-help books mm. in a way. I, I feel like these are the books that say that they're not self-help books, but actually they are trying to be like self-help books right. as opposed to books that are not self-help books that get sort of adopted by the culture as self-help books. Down, down I feel like we've identified two books. different categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, those are annoying. The, the, the like faux memoir where you're just like, this is all sugarcoated. And it yeah. really does. It, it, it serves to make you feel bad if you're not able to read it with that kind of critical lens or, yeah, cynicism. <laughs> I, I feel that there's probably a related category of books, which um, are putative self-help books. That are not really self-help books. Oh, you mean most of them? <laughs> well, so I, as the as the resident self-help, it, it still has value, guys. And seek safely. No, I, I will give a lot of self-help books the benefit of the doubt that they're trying, right? Like, like they're trying to do what they say they're doing, like whatever, like they, they whatever they 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 may be terrible, but. The person who wrote them was well-intentioned. I'll give him the benefit of that doubt. I'm naive. I know. I know. I know. A good example of this is a book called Rational Recovery by a guy named Jack Trimpey. I have read every addiction recovery book on the planet. I'll let you guess why. I'm very open about why. I'm a recovering addict. I've read every, every addiction recovery book out there. And a really interesting one is this book, Rational Recovery by Jack Trimpey. And he presents a model. I don't know if it's his actually his original model, but I know this is where I first read about it, of addiction recovery that is antithetical to the 12 step. He has a huge problem with the 12 step model. Um, and he presents this alternative model, which is called AVRT, addict- addiction voice recognition technique. It's a really good technique. And he wrote this pretty thick book, I've got it on the shelf behind me, about it, uh, where one chapter is basically devoted to the technique. Like, like this is how you recognize your addiction voice. This is how you talk back to it. This is how you stay clean. The rest of the book is this pretty aggressive screed against the the 12-step movement. <laughs> he gets bitter. He gets mean. He's really bad at the 12-step. And like, here's another chapter on why they suck. And here's another chapter on how they're integrated into like the courts and stuff. And that's terrible, right? Which is interesting because I, as a recovering addict, took the book off the shelf to read for its addiction recovery stuff. So I got my one chapter of that. But I feel that it's kind of a Trojan horse in a way. Because again, mm-hmm. like, like you buy it for this, turns out it's this whole other thing or largely this other thing. Or like the, like the worst, the, the, like the worst advice self-help books, you know, like the ones that are just sort of making fun of the industry and giving just terrible, just terrible advice. Those are often quite fun, but it would be very interesting to see then how, when we enter the world of AI writing more of this stuff, how the tenor of self-help books may change. Because as you and I were both noticing about AI, that there's a flatness and a, a sort of emptiness often in the advice that it gives and the guidance that it gives. My bet is we're going to see more of that coming out of, from self-help authors who are increasingly pressured to write books. So now it's not going to be the books that 
uh, really are, that aren't advertised as self-help books, but that are, but now it's going to be the self-help books that are offering advice that really isn't. It's like, uh, it'll all be word salad. Mm-hmm. That's what I imagine AI self-help will be. It'll just all be word salad that when you actually sit there, you go, whoa, that's profound. And then you're like, actually, this means nothing. <laughs> well, well, that was my response. So yeah. dear listeners, Dr. Whelan took the liberty of asking ChatGPT a couple of weeks ago. She horrified me. She took the liberty of asking ChatGPT to write a few tweets in the in the style. What, what was the query exactly? It was... The tone and style of <laughs> Glenn Patrick Doyle. Of Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle. And ChatGPT was very complimentary toward me and said, sure, I can do that. He has a very warm, empathic style and then blah, 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 and then spit out however many tweets. And, and so Christine sends me a screenshot of this. And at first, I'm bitter because I'm like, God, like I spend time every day writing tweets and trying to make them sound not stupid. And this thing just did it. And like, what am I doing here? Like my, my career is over. Like, but then I got to reading them and, and, it, and my observation that I told you guys was like, well, there's no there, there. Like, yeah, it, it uses some of my vocabulary and, and, and whatever, but like it, it, you could hear kind of the cadence of my voice, but not really. What it reminded me of was every now and then I'll get somebody like who will reply to a tweet or a post of mine and say, I love it when you said this and I'll listen. I go, I don't think I said that. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, they've just missed the point of what I've said. Like maybe, maybe just a little, but they've missed the core of what I've said. And that's what chat might, you know, the chat GPT version of Dr. Glenn Patrick. That's what it felt like. It's like somebody, if you ask somebody who just didn't quite get it, so, Dr. Doyle, I've just asked ChatGPT to write an introduction and a table of contents for a self-help book in the tone and style of Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle. <laughs> oh, no. Here, here's the title. Embracing Your Inner Strength, A Journey to Self-Discovery and Resilience. I've got the introduction here. Are you ready for it? Welcome, brave soul, to this journey of self-discovery and resilience. I'm Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle, and I'm here to guide you through a transformative path. No! One that will... <laughs> One that will lead you to the core of your inner strength. In these pages, we'll explore the depths of what it means to be human, the struggles, the triumphs, and everything in between. It goes on, by the way. Wow. But I'll just <laughs> I'll pause it there. Um, I also, by the way, have a complete table of contents about understanding yourself, uh, the art of resilience, emotional wisdom, the power of connections. Cultivating joy and gratitude, the path ahead. There's an append there's an appendices that they're suggesting. Oh, wow. Um, That's and a whole about the author section. And you know. <laughs> and, and about the author section. Yes. Oh yeah, about the author. Uh, in this book I aim to blend professional psychological insights with a deeply human touch, encouraging you not just to read, but to engage, reflect, and grow. Remember, the most important steps on this journey are the ones you take for yourself. Let's start walking. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> wow. So Let's maybe ChatGPT isn't quite as far along as, <laughs> as we thought. Oh, boy. What occurs to me is I haven't, yeah, Christine, as you read that, I just like, wow. I haven't written or said anything like that since I got sober. So maybe it's like <laughs> ChatGPT is just a step behind. Like, what did Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle sound like when he was using? Like, yeah, it's resilience? Yeah, man. Show me resilience. Oh, my God. Wow. Well, there's my party trick of the night there, Dr. Doyle. <laughs> we love it, Dr. Whelan. We love to see it. But you're right, Christine, I think, you know, in a world where it's all about producing content, producing content, producing content, and not so much about the quality of that content, but the the quantity of it. With tools like this, I think we are, <laughs> we're in for an interesting ride, I guess. I have concerns. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Christine, do you have of? Oh, so we've mentioned dozens of books during this during this podcast. Yeah. Do you have what you would consider to be a favorite self help book that's not actually a self help book? It might, you know, honestly, it it is it is potentially cheesy to say, but it might be the Bible because I see it as 
so foundational to almost everything that comes next. If it, if it weren't that, then it would be Benjamin Franklin and poor Richard's Almanac. But that is sort of, that was meant to be a self-help book, sort of, except that it wasn't ever marketed really as a self-help book because it wasn't in the time, it, like people didn't talk about books that way. So if you would say that poor Richard's Almanac was not a self-help book, but more a wise man's sort of musings on life, then, then that's, that's another one. But if as some people would put it in the genre sort of posthumously, then I'm going to go with the Bible. Oh, you bet. No, we love, we'd love to see it. That's a great answer. How about you? What do you got? So I have two thoughts, you know, one, I guess three thoughts, including in the arena by, by Nixon. I'll do this one first. There, there is a book. I, I think he expanded it into a series, but um, a book by a guy named Gregory Doc, I think is his name, who wrote a book titled The Book of Questions. Does this ring a bell? No, I'm going to look it up. I've got it right here. It's Gregory. Yeah, Gregory Stock. Looks like this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is, as advertised, a book of about 200 questions. And they're kind of conversation starter questions. They're kind of deep thinker questions. Like I can just open it up to a random page and put on my reading glasses because no self-help book will fix this vision issue of mine. Question number 86 is how do you picture your funeral? Is it important for you to have people mourn your death? And that's it. Like just each, each page has a different thing. Number 57 is, would you be willing to give up sex for one year if you knew it would give you a much deeper sense of peace than you have now? Having given up sex for a year at a time, I can tell you it does not lead to a greater sense of peace, but that's <laughs> it's neither here nor there. Anyway, so the book of questions, it's not by rights a self-help book. Like, like it's not, it wouldn't fit your definition, Christine, of, of an intentional self-help book. That said, I, th- I think that reading through the book of questions would, would spark enough deep thoughts and, and, in, and, and, and self-reflection that it would function like a self-help book. So again, it's a self-help book that's not a self-help book. The other book that, that springs to my mind that I've personally used as a self-help book, and it's not a self-help book, but my favorite book of all time is The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Mm. It's my favorite book of all time. And it's one of the most inspiring book. And I know it's, I say that to people and they're like, dude, did, did you read the book? It's a huge bummer. <laughs> and I agree. It's a, it's a huge bummer. It's, it's in some ways a cautionary tale. That said, I identified so powerfully with the character of Gatsby. So if you haven't read the book, it's about this. Guy who is he's, he's a guy, you know, I'm not even going to try and summarize the great Gatsby. It's kind of complex, but the character of Gatsby has a journey, a transformational journey in the book where, where he decides that, that he's going to reinvent himself. And I read this for the first time, I, I think the summer between freshman and sophomore year of high school. And I'm like, yeah, like there's so much there for me, like so many life lessons um, to take away, including the cautionary tale at the end. I won't spoil the ending, but it's a huge bummer. But I think a lot of people think of The Great Gatsby as as a de facto self-help book for the same the same reasons. I want to read it again now through that lens. You bet. Jean, what, what do you think? Do you have a favorite self-help book that's not a self-help book? You, you famous lover of self-help books generally. So favorite in the sense of the one I love to hate the most is, is Eat, Pray, Love, just for the sheer <laughs> audacity of it. And then favorite in the sense of one that's not really a self-help book. We didn't actually talk about this one, but Walden. Oh, Walden, Walden is a great – oh, we should have done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's Walden and, interestingly, so the American psychologist B.F. Skinner, uh, famous behaviorist, wrote a book titled Walden 2. Have you ever heard of this, Jean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have heard of this. So, I don't know if I've read it. So but. Skinner, so my undergraduate mentor, Dr. Robert Cicerone, was a radical behaviorist, and he was always cramming Skinner down our throats. And thank you, Dr. Cicerone. It's, it's, it's fantastic. But yeah, Skinner wrote this book titled Walden 2, which so Walden, of course, was kind of this, this utopian like idyllic utopia. Walden too was Skinner's vision of like, if everyone, if everyone just followed behaviorist principles of the, the principles of behavioral psychology, we could create our own utopia and it would function well, wouldn't have any of the problems of modern American culture. And he wrote this like utopian book about behaviorist utopia, Walden too. 
which is kind of a self-help book that's not a self-help book. Mm-hmm. Walden's a good one. Uh, Thoreau, right? Yeah. yeah. Henry David Thoreau. I went out to the woods. Can you quote it? I went out to the woods to... To live deliberately. Yeah, to live deliberately. Like Rilke? Rilke and, and letters to a young poet. Once you started talking about Walden, I started thinking of 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 sort of these poetic works that could really could really guide us in many ways but man we could talk about this forever i mostly what i would like out of all of this i think we just need like a, a bibliography and a reading list um to, to yeah. summarize this uh because you know we could link it to amazon you get kickbacks it'll be great yeah well the the show notes is basically just going to be a, a a bunch of links to all the books that we've mentioned. Um, I keep forgetting Gene has to keep track of our poor show notes. We should do that. I know I've been writing them. I've been writing all of this down. I think that, you know, all this discussion kind of brings me back a few main things. I think I want to highlight before we completely wrap up, but one is like you were saying, Christine, and we've said this over and over again, this has been a foundational or like a core problem that seek safely has faced is that when you kind of start looking at it, you're like, well, everything is self-help, I guess. So I don't know. And that becomes a challenge when you're trying to sort of fix self-help. Which brings me to my second point, which is that we kind of decided after a little while, well, we can't really fix self-help, especially if it's everything. So what we can do is try to help guide people as they're looking at all of this self-helpy stuff to not get pulled into um, some of the traps that we find with it. So on that note, when people are encountering encountering all of these types of books, these books that aren't self-help books that become self-help books, either in the culture or that even they read as a self-help book for themselves personally, what, what advice would you give to people to, help them avoid some of the pitfalls, things like adopting some self-blame when they can't live up to the promise that's presented or that kind of thing. What, how, how should people kind of go about working through our reading list, I guess? I think first, the idea that any advice that is promising to transform your life and help you may also have the power to harm you and to do, you know, to do things in the negative as well. So anytime you change based on something, it can have positive and negative effects. And if you're reading a work of fiction and then trying to compare your life to it, please remember that this was an idealized work of fiction. Just like those vignettes are made up, these, these stories are often made up. P.S. Even if it's a memoir, it's only half the story. So taking everything with a grain of salt and in academic literature around self-help, actually, it's called self-help as a thin culture, sort of reading it, um, reading it and picking and choosing uh, what you want to take. So really being an educated consumer. And that's one of the things I love about Seek Safely is what we're trying to do is to educate people to ask the right questions, not to say, to turn their back on seeking or in personal improvement, but to do it uh, asking questions about what works and what doesn't for all of us as individuals. I mean, it, it dovetails really well with, I mean, a piece of my core messaging as a internet influencer. Now, I tell people that, look, realistic like so, I deal with trauma and addiction recovery. Realistic trauma and addiction recovery it usually doesn't come from just one source. In my experience, really, and that includes one therapist. In my experience, successful, sustainable, realistic recovery is cobbled together through usually dozens of sources. You know, you you, you pick up an idea here, you pick up a philosophy there, right? And so, I would treat anything that um, that you're reading self-help spiritual whatever it is as one potential source of ideas that you're gonna you know you're gonna kind of pick and choose right it's it's kind of a cafeteria approach to recovery because i think in my mind it's the only thing that's ever worked for me like i've never found my comprehensive recovery plan in one source so again think of whatever you're reading as as it's going to contribute it's not going to be the whole shebang 
we should also be mindful that there are lots of books, self-help and otherwise. I find this is particularly true in the back half of these books, where they'll lay out their 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 philosophy, their ideas, like whatever. And then in like the back half of it, they'll really try to sell it. Like they'll really try and proselytize. Like this is it. Like a good example of this is I'm Okay, You're Okay by Thomas Harris. It's a book about a, a, a essentially a therapy technique called transactional analysis. And it lays it all out. It's really good, like for the first two thirds. And then in the last third, Harris goes off on this whole thing and like, this is going to fix the world. And you can apply this to like diplomatic relationships between nations. And like, if he does the Skinner thing in Walden too, of like, if everyone just thought this way, right? So be mindful of the fact that whatever you're reading will probably at some point oversell the thing. And, and you're really looking just for things to put in in your toolbox. You're not looking for the answer, capital T, capital A. Mm-hmm. I love it. All right. So I think our advice, summing it up, read widely. Remember that fiction is fiction and memoir is only half the story. And don't get sucked in too deeply to any one idea. There are lots of different ideas out there and different things might work for different people. So, Gene Brown with a pithy summary. We love to see it. Be, beware the sales pitch. Yep. That's, that's, that's my jab. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Whelan, for joining us. We always love to have you on. We'll definitely have you back. Thank you so much for having me. This yeah. was so fun. And thank you guys for giving me a list of 45 books to go look up links for. I appreciate it. <laughs> this, this, this tends to happen on almost every episode of the Seek Safely podcast that Jean does with me. Like I'll rattle off a dozen self-help books and I can, I can see the sigh. I can see that. <sighs> so. Oh, it's good. It's awesome. I love it. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you guys liked this episode, if you like our podcast, please go and leave us a glowing five-star review. If you don't, if you didn't like this episode, if you don't like our podcast, then just forget I said anything. Thanks for listening, everybody. All right. Thank you. Take it easy. Ciao, ciao. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope that you have found it enlightening, and we'd be so, so grateful if you'd share it with the seekers in your life. We all know at least one, right? Until our next episode, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Seek Safely. Connect with Dr. Glenn Patrick Doyle at Dr. Doyle Says, and me, Jean, at Jean C. Brown on Twitter. Feel free to send us an email, info at seeksafely.org. To support Seek Safely, you can make a secure donation on our website, seeksafely.org slash donate. The Seek Safely podcast is produced by Citizens of Sound.